Hi, everybody, and welcome to another special episode of the Best Pictures Podcast. I'm Maggie, this is Ian, and today we have a very special guest joining us. We have Mike Immel from Cinemusts Podcast. Mike, would you like to introduce yourself and talk a little bit about what you do on Cinemusts? Sure. Hey, everybody. I'm Mike. I run the Cinemus podcast, like Maggie said. Uh, Ian and Maggie have both graced us with their presence on Cinemus. What we do, we use the book A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die as a jumping off point to debate what the true essential movies are. So we'll take a, a movie from that book. We'll debate it with a guest. We'll rank it according to our own little system which is uh, we put movies into the category of a cinema must, a cinema trust, or a cinema bust. So a movie everybody should see, some people should see, or nobody should see. And we debate it. But the cool thing is, is that our, our debate does not decide whether it's on or off the list. We actually leave it up to listeners to go to our social media profiles and vote on if they think the movie should make the list or not. So it's a ton of fun. I highly recommend the episodes, especially uh, that Ian and Maggie were on. They helped, They co-hosted a segment of our 50th episode covering Star Wars A New Hope. They've talked about movies like To Kill a Mockingbird and The Philadelphia Story. It's always fun with them, and we have a slew of other great guests. So that's what we're, that's what we're about. And uh, if you guys want to swing by our Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook pages, it would mean a lot if you'd cast your vote on if the movies we discuss will make the list of essential cinema. Yeah, you guys should definitely check it out. We've had so much fun co-hosting. Um, all of the episodes are really good, and they've definitely covered some movies over there that we've covered on our podcast, so you should go listen to a different opinion on that. Heaven knows Ian and I don't always know what we're talking about. Often make things up on the fly. So and We are consummate <laughs> professionals. We are always knowing what we're talking about. <laughs> So we are actually doing one that they have done before on Cinema. So Mike was mentioning when we were recording the Star Wars episode that he kind of wanted like another crack at Psycho. And Ian and I were like, well, that's absolutely perfect because we've decided that our theme for our Halloween episodes is Psycho Killers, including the original Psycho. Yeah. So it was a great opportunity. And I'm really excited. <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad. <laughs> So to run into some background for those who have not seen the film yes. before, it's a 1960 psychological um, thriller directed by... Ian is doing background again because I am currently still in protest for being made to watch scary movies. Again, Maggie does not like horror just films. want that so, out there. Or she just doesn't want to do background. <laughs> I, that's a thought. We will table that discussion. So Psycho is a 1960 psychological thriller directed by Alfred Hitchcock. And starring Janet Lee, John Gavin, Anthony Perkins, Vera Miles, and Martin Balson. Um, and the film centers around Lee's character, Marion Crane, as she flees with a small fortune but is waylaid in the Bates Motel. As her sister and boyfriend close in on where she was last seen, we get a clearer and clearer picture of the eponymous psycho in the film. So, really, really cool horror, horror film, pretty influential too. Um, from an awards perspective, it was actually nominated for four Oscars in the 33rd uh, Academy Awards. Um, so uh, Alfred Hitchcock was nominated for Best Director, Janet Lee for Supporting Actress, John L. Russell for Cinematography Black and White, and lastly, uh, for Art Direction, Set Decoration in Black and White, Joseph Hurley, Robert Clatworthy, and George Milo. Um, so didn't win any of those awards, but Janet Lee did win a Golden Globe for her supporting actress role, which I personally think was very well-deserved. I, I enjoyed her performance. It didn't win any? Uh, not at the Oscars. Dang. I'm pretty surprised. 
yeah. So that was the year the apartment won. Um, so I guess Maggie, that's our next Canon episode, I believe. So we yeah. will, uh, I think chime in on psycho there. Yeah, for sure. Um, so some other like fun little things on there. So AFI definitely has this featuring prominently in its hundred years, hundred insert thing here lists. So, um, for hundred years, hundred thrills, it's actually number one. So again, pretty, pretty influential there. Number eight on a hundred years, hundred movies. And then, uh, Norman Bates is actually the number two villain on their villains list and has the number 56 quote um, for a boy's best friend is his mother. So again, highly decorated, really interesting film. Um, I personally loved it first time seeing it too. So Wait, really? Yeah, I had never seen it before. I oh, see so again. <laughs> getting is, to see it for the first time. This is definitely one. So I'm curious, were you aware of kind of like, oh yeah, and I... I don't know why we keep saying this, but a heads up, guys, spoilers. Were you aware of the big <laughs> twist like going into this? Like, Did you know who the villain was? So in the back of my mind, I think I had heard it before. But the biggest thing for me coming into it the first time is I thought the shower scene was more of a climax and less of a kind of like kicking off the main action of the film. Um, so, you know, half an hour in when I'm like, oh, my gosh, she's already getting like stabbed in the shower. <laughs> Um, that was, uh, I guess a little bit surprising, but I think what it was about two thirds of the way through when, um, they were talking about the mother not being buried. That's when I that's started when to really you. connect the dots. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Cause I, even though this is the second time I saw it, the first time I saw the movie, I was still like, I, I knew who the killer was. It was one of those things where it's like, I had forgotten. And then I think they were talking about taxidermy and I was like, he's the killer. So because I was like, that's a weird hobby to have. And those birds are really creepy. He's definitely the killer. Um, <laughs> but I've always been curious. I'm like, you know, I think when we were on uh, Cinemus for the Star Wars episode, we talked about like how cool it would have been to be in the theater opening night of Star Wars, not knowing anything about that movie. And I think Psycho is one of those movies where like to be able to go into it completely blind would be absolutely amazing. I mean, it'd be terrifying, but absolutely amazing. Yeah. Made all the better that Hitchcock is kind of, he has a marketing campaign around the movie that dares you to like get there at the start of the show because that wasn't the norm. So mm -hmm. he's he put out that whole campaign that's like you can't get in once the movie started so you'll have to wait for the next showtime. So he really got people jammed into the seats with this awesome Janet Lee led movie and she's murdered halfway through and you have no idea what's going to happen. <laughs> well, it's absolutely brilliant because I was reading that the Hitchcock movie before this was North by Northwest, which is kind of this like larger spanning like caper thriller kind of deal so the way this movie starts is like a little bit like that you're like oh janet lee stole the money she's going to be running away people are going to be hunting her down for stealing the money and then suddenly it's like er, break on that shower scene this movie's going in a completely different direction and it's just kind of this like really brilliant redirect Definitely. And I, I loved how they kept your attention on the main kind of like caper thing with how they featured the hidden $40,000. Mm -hmm. So I, the way that he distracted you from kind of where it was heading, I, I really appreciated. Yeah, I think it's so it's so cool that you think you're watching one movie, suddenly you're watching a different movie. And like, because of that, they took time to actually like set up characters and everything, which is kind of my biggest thing with movies. I'm very character driven watcher so i'm like oh if i care about the characters and i like the characters then like i'm invested in this movie and like i want to see what happens even if i do have to close my eyes when i know the killer is about to pop up 
So you did know when to close your eyes, right? <laughs> uh, there was a silhouette in the shower curtain, Ian. Also, the minute the shower scene started, I was like ready to go with my pillow to hide behind. <laughs> so I was going to ask Maggie, having listened to the Halloween episode, knowing that you're not into the psycho killer thing, how did Psycho sit with you? Because it's a pretty low body count movie. Like, was it still terrifying? Could you keep your eyes open through most of it? I mean, it is still creepy and it's very unsettling. Um, I did like hide a little bit during the shower scene, but like in general, I think like if you're not a fan of scary movies, like you should still watch Psycho because it is incredibly well shot. Like it's great storytelling and like there really aren't a lot of jump scares. And like, it's not like it was a little, it was graphic for the time, but it's like not at all graphic now. It's black and white, which definitely helps. Like, it's still a very compelling movie and it is very creepy. But honestly, the creepiest part is that ending, which I will save until we get to the ending. But that's the part that like really sends chills down my spine. Might be my most favorite and least favorite part of the movie, like in the last five minutes. Right. Do we want to just like start doing our chronology? Yeah, let's do it. Um, So one thing that this whole film did that I really appreciate is kind of the contrast between dark and light. So you have this very dramatic opening credit scene um, with kind of the jarring moving lines and the names that would kind of split up. Amazing score. Like the score is off running from the very beginning because this film does have like one of the best scores. And one of the most iconic, I think the in the shower scene, especially um, you get the screeching of the strings and that motif comes yeah. back a couple times, which is is really great. But yeah, I totally agree with that. And you get the main theme that repeats and haunts uh, Janet Lee's character, Marion, as she moves through the film. Um, but you're like opening on to this really sunny Phoenix, Arizona place. And you have this foreboding music as it kind of zooms in to a really dark hotel room. And so kind of that contrast there, I think, heightened what really was happening in the room and put me on the edge of my seat in the very beginning because again you're kind of like what's going to happen in this room that we don't need to see (laughs) it's such an interesting opening too because like for the time like it was really racy because i did look up the production code because technically the production code was 1934 through 1968 so this is 1968 years before it's technically like repealed but apparently like getting into the late 50s and then into the 60s, like it just wasn't strongly enforced. So people are like kind of getting away with like more and more and more. And it's definitely like probably like the raciest beginning to a film we've seen, I think, with like for the podcast, for anything that's older than 1960. For me, definitely. And I know that the censors, I think, wanted to be present for a reshoot of that like beginning scene, but they didn't show up. So Hitchcock was like, you can't say anything. Exactly, exactly. To be honest, I'm surprised the movie received like the Oscar nominations that it did because I know it was, um, I guess, morally speaking, kind of reviled. I know Walt Disney especially like went on the rampage against it. Um, but I guess when you're a huge box office success, like that can, uh, can get you Oscar nominations. But yeah, this is definitely, for a guy whose career is marked with titillation and pushing boundaries this one does seem sometimes to be the most transgressive for sure well and i mean by like today's standards obviously like like mike was saying like the body counts very low for a horror movie and we're like yeah like it's not like that bad but at the time they're like the shot the fact the fact that there is a shot of a flushing toilet in this film people were like oh my goodness that's when i hide behind the pillow (laughs) (laughs) So 
most of the establishing scenes to get Marion on her way center around her job and her, I guess, boyfriend. I I, I feel like that yeah. is not quite the yeah. right term to use here. Um, well, it's they established very clearly that like these two are in a relationship, like they're dating. I think Sam had been previously divorced because he was talking about needing to like pay off his debts and his ex-wife, which like already right there, like our heroes divorced, scandalous. And then we have Marion who's saying like, you know, I, I'd like to get married, but like money's an issue and all that stuff. So we already have like a very clearly defined, very clearly defined characters. And we also have very clear like motivations for them because I, that's something that I think in horror movies you don't always get. Like you don't necessarily, especially for characters that are going to die halfway through. Like we, we know her, we understand her, we get her motivations. And I, I feel like there isn't like a ton of, judgment placed on her like i feel like when she steals like i'm pretty on board with it because the guy she steals from sure yeah such a jackass (laughs) because you're set up to hate that texan yeah that scene i found extremely cringy but it did again Mm. put me solidly in marion's camp yeah it's it's very cringy but it's it's cringy in the right way if that makes sense i mean he really does have so many good lines like i do declare i don't that's how i get to keep it yeah Oh my gosh. And when then she's got her poor coworker <laughs> who's like super sad and like just giving like just giving her pills. Tranquilizers. And okay, yeah, the like, fact yeah. this poor woman needed tranquilizers for her wedding night, like I, I know. We're like, oh, oh my gosh. I'm sorry. <laughs> no wonder Marion wants to just like take the money and flee. <laughs> well and she But clues you in, this is a movie about sad people. True. It really is. Now, there's, I, there's no one happy in this. <laughs> I, the rich guy's pretty happy. Well, until he gets his 40k <laughs> stolen. Well, you don't know that. That's in that's in Marion's imagination. He could be fine with it. I always waffle on that. He, as I'm like, is it in her imagination, or is that actually like what's happening? Maybe she's think, psycho. Yeah, I think I think it's all in her head because he does say that he never carries with him more than he can afford to lose. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a good but line I, that I almost but forgot surely about. He'd still be angry oh sure sure he was buying a house for his daughter who was getting married so stealing the wedding gift away at least but but i love i love like the shots around her stealing the money because it's basically her boss just tells her like hey i don't want this cash just lying around the office take it to the bank we'll get them to cut us a check in the morning like monday morning it'll be fine and she basically says cool i have a headache i'm going home to sleep it off then it's the shot of just the money lying on the bedspread and then we see the suitcase that she's packing on the bed next to it. Yeah, I didn't see this coming. <laughs> Even though you had the foreboding music kind of building up that something was going to go down, I was actively shocked when I saw the suitcase on the bed. So I guess this is a symptom of me coming in to not knowing what's happening because I was like, oh, she's going to have this money and something's going to happen that surrounds like her house and that's how she's going to get murdered in the shower. But anyway, <laughs> this was me Man, trying to fill li- in. You literally came into this very, very blind. Oh, completely blind. And I'm so glad for it. It's <laughs> the best way to do it. I tried to. It is, but somehow it's still surprising to me. <laughs> But in that 40 scene, something episodes later, yeah, it, it is should not be surprising. surprising. <laughs> but one of my favorite things was actually uh, Janet Lee's performance in this scene because you could tell that she did have some sort of conscious, and you could see mm-hmm. it in her eyes and in her face how she was still not fully convinced that she was going to leave this house and take the money and run. So, 
so much of her performance is reaction and she she's so so good at it like that oscar nomination was so well deserved because like i mean you know she has lines and stuff that she has to deliver but like so much of it is just like her posture her body language her facial expression like whether it is dealing with like the asshole texan guy who's like hardcore flirting with her and she's having like none of it or if it's like her interactions with sam and like her reaction to him saying like fine let's get married or like the indecision about like should i go should i take the money or and the shot that i love is her sitting in the car at the crosswalk and her boss walks by and like their reaction where first they're like oh hey and then they're both like wait a minute she should not be here great moment of tension it's it's so because, good and because who hasn't played hooky from work and dreaded that exact same scenario happening? <laughs> when I play oh hooky, God, I, I stay at my house. <laughs> I can't. Imagine. That's never. Oh, it, that had never occurred to me as like a possibility. Oh no. <laughs> uh oh, Mike, you've given Maggie an anxiety. I, I just corrupted a generation of hardworking Americans. <laughs> I love it. So that whole fleeing scene where she between when she leaves Phoenix and gets to the Bates Motel, I loved how they progressively built up the tension until she mm-hmm. she arrived at the hotel. Because I think the I f- biggest from the moment she steals the money, the tension does not release no, in this movie. No, and it it almost it threatened to. So she spends the night on the side of the road. We find. Um, Could she act more suspicious when that top one <laughs> Like, oh my God, Marriott. Like, she might as well have painted, like, I have a body in my trunk on the side of her car. Like, he's just like, can I see your license? And she's like, why? And I'm like, girl, just give, just give him your license. <laughs> this is her not knowing what she's doing. But to be fair, she doesn't know what she's doing. And I got that from Norman, too, where it's like, Norman what are you doing? You should be better at this by now. <laughs> well, it's like the sixties too. Like word is not going to have traveled yet. You got like a couple days before word travels in the 1960s. Like, come on. But she's a good girl. She doesn't, you know, she's, she's only going to have Sam over, you know, if they can have dinner with her sister and the mom's portrait has to be facing them. She's a good she, person. She's stealing that 40 K for love. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> but as she drives off, one of the things that I really noticed with her is like even the way she kind of fidgets on the steering wheel just adds to this picture of how distressed she is and how stressed out. It's like, I, again, fa- fantastic performance the, the whole way through that drive. Yeah, it's so good. And so much of it is literally just like her at the wheel, close up, like the voices of what she's imagining going on in the background and then her just like looking sort of panicked but contained and i think that kind of front on view of her face it's used many times throughout this whole film and i think to great effect so the first time i really noticed it was the kind of slightly low angle of the police officer filling the entire frame from marion's point of view and that was so jarring to me but he uses that there Sometimes you get it with Norman in some of the later scenes as well. But I love how it's not something that you see very often or used so like often in, a, in the film. What am I trying to say? That sort of shot. Okay, let me back up. Okay. <laughs> I have no idea where you're going. I'm going to... I can't rescue you. <laughs> 
<laughs> sunglasses are scary. Sunglasses are are scary. Aviators are scary. Um, but no, like the shot in particular and having somebody appear larger than life in the frame like that is extremely jarring and not so commonly used in my limited experience. So seeing it used over and over again to show that kind of like domination and fear from the perspective of Marion, I think is very effective. Yeah, well, I found this movie, like the cinematography is very claustrophobic. Like it's a lot of close-ups. It's a lot of like kind of off angles and a lot of like extreme close-ups and everything. And I think that keeps it like kind of claustrophobic so that you always feel like very in the action with the characters which i think is very effective yeah i'd agree with that completely and especially in the small spaces where they linger on some of these scenes so after all the car scene that's when i think the next big bout of interesting things take place between norman and marion and so i just can we talk about the shots though leading up to the bates motel how beautiful it is with like the car lights coming through the windshield that's like covered in water and then the car lights just stop i was like she's gonna hit something like i was like i don't remember but does she like run off the road like what happens i was like that is so scary and it's also a great setup for just how isolated this place is with those lights slowly dying off and then there's just darkness for forever and rain you know it's it's kind of got a fairy tale quality of being lost in, in the deep dark woods and then there's your your candied house with the Bates Motel. Yeah, and it just kind of like the Bates Motel sign just coming into view. Oh, that's... I feel like, honestly, the creepiest parts of this movie were not the parts that, like, should have been the creepiest to me. Like that. Like the idea of, like, driving at night and, like, suddenly there are no headlights and I can't see because of rain. I was like, that's, that's horrifying. Oh, no, it is. Yeah. Like so many... Well, think of... Well, this is not a great example. I was going to say Rocky Horror Picture Show, (laughs) the way that it begins. But it's that same sort of idea of on a dark and stormy night. (laughs) Yeah. So it's a a staple. Yeah, exactly. Well, and definitely loved it here and how the rain ultimately stopped, too. It's such an opportune moment that was almost like a sign that you should run. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. But I let's talk about the character of Norman. Because Anthony Perkins is so good. I would contend this is the best performance a horror movie ever had. He's so good. I cannot refute that at all. Like, he's he's so good, and he's so cast against type. You know, he's, he's awkward, but, like, seems nice enough. And he's got, I think I read where someone described it as, like, he's got, like, almost a Jimmy Stewart quality to him. And I was like, well, if I ever ran into a killer that had a Jimmy Stewart quality, like, I'm done for because I love Jimmy Stewart. Like, I would never know. I totally agree with that, especially in the first couple moments. Well, I shouldn't say couple moments, but the first, you know, five minutes of their meeting because he's so, seems so earnest and willing to, like, hey, nobody's been through here in a while. Let me have some interaction with a real human for once. So like, heads up, guys, that's red flag number one. Do not stop at the creepy roadside motel that has all the vacancies. Hey, that's not not that hey, that's not fair to all of the wonderful The serial killers, Ian. It's not fair to the serial killers. Not all hotel operators are serial killers, Maggie. That's not what I said. In fact, a minority probably aren't. Are, are. A minority are. <laughs> Well, if you just look for that particular red flag, hopefully you'll miss that minority. I'm just saying. I don't want to punish everyone just because a few bad motel keepers like Norman Bates ruined it for everybody. But 
just saying. That's it's okay. Maybe not a red flag. We'll call it a yellow flag. There are more red flags to come. We can we can get there slowly. Man, those fictional serial killer hotel owners ruin it for the rest of us. <laughs> So we do get a really quick scene with Marion hiding her spoils in her hotel room in plain sight, which I thought was brilliant. But I think that scene really functioned just to make sure that we were still focused on her running away with money, if I'm being honest. Because what was actually the interesting part is in the parlor where Norman comes back down with the sandwich and the milk. Well, first off, we hear an exchange between Norman and his air quotes mom where she's basically yelling it's just like the long shot of this big spooky house which we'll call that should we call this a red we'll call it a yellow flag number two you just hear this like really angry sounding older woman arguing with norman about like this girl who is like staying at the hotel and janet lee listens to this and is clearly very unsettled but like also not going anywhere and then norman comes back with like the sandwiches and they eat in the weird taxidermy office i loved that especially no the way to people who acts actually are taxidermists <laughs> i realized that like it's not like it, while it might be a little creepy to me personally in the context of this film like no judgment i mean in the context of the viewer too i think i think that's where the movie starts to get like super artsy because the the figure of all those birds it's like the figure of death looming over Marion and like the figure of mother looming over Norman like it's a really good visual metaphor Mm -hmm. well and they're very in very like menacing poses too like these are very like active menacing like taxidermied birds and he's got the whole like really creepy speech where it's like just she's eating and he's like you eat like a bird and then kind of goes on this long speech about birds and I'm like that is a red flag right there that's a weird speech he's fattening you up Please run. <laughs> yeah, if we're going with the fairy tale metaphor, and this is the candy house in the woods, Norman is the evil witch. Well, and like Ian said, there's something still kind of charming and disarming about him because he's a, he's a social pariah. He's lived up there by himself, so he really wants to talk to people, but he doesn't have the practice. So mm-hmm. he puts his foot in his mouth a lot, and I think that's kind of it's kind of a brilliant move in terms of characterizing Norman, but it also kind of keeps the plot moving along. Well, and because we had, like, the quote-unquote exchange between Norman and his mom, it already kind of sets up the idea of the mom being the villain and Norman kind of being just this, like, poor, awkward guy who's isolated by, like, his family obligation and the fact that, like, the highway moved away from his motel. Mm-hmm. Which really makes him such a tragic figure. And probably the reason he's one of my favorite movie characters of all time is... um. You know, this, this is a horror movie that doesn't rely on the supernatural or, or even like that outlandish um, of, a, of a concept that people can get driven to acts of madness and violence through loneliness or through trauma placed on them by friends or family or loved ones. Like there's there's a lot of rich gr- um, groundwork being laid there between those two characters. And it's a history that's going to get explored throughout the second half of the movie. That's what's going to become super interesting, right? Is all of the history behind how the hotel got there and what happened with Mrs. Bates and her husband. Well, and it like makes Norman an actual character. Like, I mean, to contrast it with Halloween, which we did as our first like Halloween episode this month, like Michael Myers is like this big spooky boogeyman like he seems inhuman he doesn't seem real which is like 
a different type of scary that they put into him. But Norman seems very, very real and at times very sympathetic. Oh, yeah. Totally agree with that. Because even even some of his lines that he goes through there really emphasize like how much this quote unquote relationship with his mother has screwed him up. Because, again, he gets that top quote from AFI's list, the a boy's best friend is his mother, when uh, Marion starts to press him a little bit on like, hey, do you go out with friends? Do you ever do things? Um, that oh, the was, way he clams up when she yeah. asks him if he goes out with friends, it's so good. Well, and that's, he gets the blank look in his eyes that entire time. Yeah. And I don't know if you noticed how the camera really changed as soon as he changed. And so we go from kind of looking down on him to looking up to him. Well, and I feel like you you kind of see him shift into the psychosis because when he really gets angry is when Marion's like, oh, just, I know it's rough, but have you ever thought of like putting her in a home? And then my thought is like, oh, she means retirement home. And he's like, so you mean a mental institution? Oh, you didn't and get I a mental like, institution from that? I was like, I totally okay, did. well, no, but um, this is when if I'm Marion, I'm like, okay, cool. As soon as this guy leaves, I'm making a run for my car. I don't care if it's still raining. I will just, I'll sleep by the road again. It does not matter. Like the change that happens, it's very sudden and it's very scary. And Anthony Perkins plays it so well. And then Janet Lee plays like her reaction so well too. I love how she begs off at the end where it's like, oh, no, I have to go to bed. I would love to, but I can't <laughs> stay and talk with him. And that, I don't know, just the way that you can see how tense she is through that. But it's beautifully subtle. Yeah, so good. Should have run, though. Should should have run. <laughs> so what we're finding is we just need to always run away from everybody in horror films. Yep. Run from your problems. It works. <laughs> So we get a little bit more layer to Norman's creepiness right after here, where he literally watches through a peephole in the wall as Marion gets undressed. Basically, Norman's like sympathetic until you hit like this point, and then you're like, hmm, there's there is something very off with this guy. And did you notice how he hesitated when he gave her the key, how he was almost going to give her room number two, but then gives her room number one? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like and he I was made like, the oh, decision no. Right then. <laughs> that was like ugh. okay i guess she's doomed from the from the start here yeah pretty much um we also get some kind of interesting character growth from marion and what kind of makes her character very tragic is she's decided that she's going to go back to phoenix and she's going to return the money wait she did mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. she says something where she's like basically i have to go like accept the consequences of my actions yeah so this this dialogue scene is so good because it it's a very clever device Hitchcock uses because he's going to need to shift our sympathies in a minute when we have a new main character. But yeah, also that this has an effect on Marion. So like you said, Ian, she's creeped out by this conversation, but it has a profound effect on her. She sees the results of someone who lives a life on the run or someone who feels trapped and decides that is not for her. So rather than go through with her plan and get to Sam, she wants to back out while she still can because she sees what happens when you're beyond the point of no return. Uh, I love that. I will be totally honest that if I did not read into the movie that. A little bit closer. Uh, that it, was the one. It thing. helps when you've seen it like twenty <laughs> times. <laughs> but yeah, when she, because I thought she was still on the run when she flushed the note with the forty thousand dollars figures written on it before she she gets in the shower. But she, uh, I, I thought she this. flushed that beforehand. But I guess it is. Is it right before she gets in the shower? It's, it's right somewhere before. in there. Um, but that's when we get the shower scene. 
which I love the way this is shot. Hitchcock uses a lot of like off-center shots in this film where you have someone in front of like a very plain wall and they're off-center. And I, I just find that like so beautiful uh, cinematography-wise. I was about to say cinematographically, but I don't know if that's a word. I decree it is. Yeah, okay. I, think, okay. I think it works. Cool. Gets it, the message across. It's official. <laughs> Marion Webster, talk to us. <laughs> Now I will say, who the hell stands in the shower and turns on the cold water? Thank on, you. Like, <laughs> Psycho has one flaw. One flaw. Nobody does that. Wait, it was on cold. Maggie, well, is your shower doesn't come out of the shower warm? Did yours? No, I just I always accepted as just like I guess that shower warmed up really fast. I never thought super into that. That was literally the first thing I noticed. <laughs> I just never read too much into that. I guess also at that point, it's like the shower scene has officially started. So like, I know I have to hide soon. <laughs> so like, I'm not. So you're not super, in it. And I'm I'm just coming back details. from the disgusting toilet flush. So I'm. Oh, your poor like, mid-century oh sensibilities. I'm delicate. <laughs> But I love the alternating shots in this shower, like between looking straight on to the shower head and then you get to see her against the tile wall, but you also get all of the view of this figure walking in. Yeah, it's real unnerving. It is. Well, no, and the tension that it builds with these quick staccato movements between the different shots and then, of course, the score. Well, and well, the score initially drops out in the shower scene and then it comes back in when we see the figure. It's so good. So good. Yeah. Still a moment that I think has the power to scare people. Like you said, the the, the silence coming on and proving like, because sometimes, you know, when the music ramps up, I think you can get in the mindset of like, well, how does she not hear the person walking into the room? But by dropping out all the sound and you can see what's behind her, but she can't, there's just no hope for it. It's one of those moments where you actually do want to scream at the movie character to turn around. Yeah, I uh, did not like it, but I respect it. (laughs) (laughs) Do you guys think this could be the most famous scene in movie history? I definitely think it's up there. It's got to be up there. Because I was thinking, like, there are probably other movies that I would say are more pervasive pop culturally. And I use Ian as my gauge for that. Oh, no. (laughs) Given that Ian has seen so few movies. Um, But as far as, like, specific scenes i i mean i can't really think of what maybe like the opening of indiana jones with the boulder but like that's more of just like a couple shots than like a full scene well and does the opening role of star wars count i mean maybe it's an opening yeah, question maybe that but it's it, it's definitely up there like ian i'm sure you knew what the shower scene was before. oh like yeah. when you were saying you were like i expected it to be at the end of the film but you still knew what the shower scene was yeah, yeah, and I And the fact that it's called just the shower scene and you don't even have to say the movie, like... And you can hear the music in your head. Yep. Yeah, so fun fact, I played that with a community orchestra one summer. I played it in my high school orchestra for our movies um, and pop music concert. It was an ear-splitting part of that score. It's not fun. You were a viola, it didn't matter, you didn't have to play it. Oh, yeah, I did. You know how you play yeah, that? But did you really play it? You I play- mean, not well, because it's a viola. Oh, my God. <laughs> Violin player. Hey, you know why here. I prefer to play viola in the apocalypse? Because you can burn it for firewood and no one would care. Oh, no, it burns longer for firewood. <laughs> 
Oh my goodness. Okay, so back to the film. <laughs> <laughs> but the way that this scene ends with her slowly slouching down the wall and ultimately ripping the shower curtain off of the I'm having rings. Ripping the yeah. shower curtain off of the rings. I'm having trouble talking right now. Um I loved how you didn't ever see any of the actual gore of what just I mean, happened. You see some of like the blood going down. But it's the black drain. and white, so it's so muted. And you'll notice they never show her after this. Well, no, they do too. Well, just like her arm. The, you get the drain with the water and the blood mixed in circling around it. And then it zooms into the drain and then it transitions to her eye, like an extreme close on her dead open eye and pulls out in like that whole entire sequence is just like, it's so beautifully shot. It's like mind blowing. It's hard to even be like, I mean, I did hide during some of it. I'm not going to lie, but it was easier to watch because it was so well shot that the entire time I was just like, that's a brilliant angle. That's a beautiful shot. Like the way that's framed is amazing. So, you know, even if you two listeners don't like scary movies, this is one that it might be worth just like sucking it up for. <laughs> it's probably it's probably the most artistic kill in a horror movie ever. It's beautiful the way that mm-hmm. that shot kind of symbolizes the life draining out of her. And it's also just so chilling because you like her. She was a good person. You followed her yeah. for 35 minutes. And she's you gone. Care. You care about her. She was about to do the right thing. She was literally washing away her sins as she was murdered. I feel bad for her now. It's tragic. Well, did you not before? Well, no, I did before, but it's still like, oh, sorry, Marion. But the cleanup <laughs> That's scene. That's too bad. <laughs> the cleanup, oh, the cleanup scene is also amazing. I, I just want to point out, too, like, this movie is so, like, it's considered kind of like the first slasher movie, although there are bits and pieces that I'm like you can kind of see like the start of tropes but it doesn't completely finish the trope like final girl like you kind of have a final girl in her sister Lila but not completely but I remember the first time I was watching this like Psycho I watched it with my dad who's like a massive classic movie fan and we're like first off like we have the scene with Norman and there's like the taxidermied animals and I was like he's the killer like that like that owl looming over him is so creepy and my dad was like have you you're sure you've not seen this before and i was like no no no, i haven't seen it before and then i remember during the cleanup scene i was like oh he's gonna push her car in a lake isn't he (laughs) my dad was like are you sure you like pause the movie he's like are you sure you haven't seen this before and i was like i'm positive i think i just know horror movie tropes you just well you just know how to dispose of a body oh there's all oh i guess that could be the other interpretation i was just thinking it meant that i like knew more about horror movies but i, guess. I like mike's interpretation better <laughs> you shouldn't like that interpretation considering you're my podcast co-host <laughs> okay fair very fair very fair <laughs> um the cleanup scene though yeah so good because we just talked about how bad we feel for marion and yet by the end of this sequence i think it's i think it's ebert and his great movies column he calls out that when the car stops sinking for a minute you freak out for a second because you're worried that Norman's going to get discovered. And you suddenly realize that in the course of five minutes, Hitchcock has managed to trick you into sympathizing with the guy who murdered the person you've been sympathizing with for the first 40 minutes of the movie. But you don't because know it's seems, him yet. He seems so <laughs> genuinely panicked. Yes. That you're like, oh my God, the mom did it. Like that psycho mom. And he's so panicked and he's like cleaning up. I also love 
that the 40k wrapped in the newspaper just goes in the trunk of the car like the thing that has been the central conflict of our movie for the first like half hour of this movie does not matter they're like throw it out the window don't need it anymore this is a whole new story yeah that was a little disappointing for me just because forty thousand dollars is like three hundred thousand dollars today not that i looked it up or anything (laughs) 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 so (laughs) i was like it was for the good of the narrative Oh, it was, but it's life-changing money for poor Norman. Which becomes, like, a huge thing. Like, I say that they just, like, toss it away, but not really. Like, they make it an integral part of the plot where people are like, you know, oh, Norman must have killed her for the money because, like, surely he wants to get away from here. Like, surely he doesn't want to live in this rundown motel with his crazy mom. Like, that must be why he killed her. And it's like, oh, no, he's he's just crazy. Yeah. Well, that's an angle I came to appreciate a lot. This view and getting ready for, to discuss the movie on this podcast is I, I'd always just dismiss the money as the, the Hitchcock MacGuffin, that it's the thing that drives the plot and everybody wants it, but it doesn't matter at all. But I like that, like you said, Maggie, as it keeps getting brought up through the investigation of what happened to Marion and where she's at, people keep referring back to it. And it almost seems to be uh, conveying this world outlook that so many people can't wrap their mind around things happening for any other reason than money. Like when people hear, when the psychiatrist says these were crimes of passion, not money, people are still kind of like off put by it. They're like, what? It has to be about the money. Why would somebody do this because of emotions or family relationships? It has to be about the money. Mm -hmm. Well, and then it also plays into the fact that like, of course, you know, her sister Lila and Sam don't like, initially they hire a private detective because they don't want her to like get in trouble about the money yet like they want to give her the chance to return it like the police aren't that interested in the fact that she's disappeared because they're like well she stole a bunch of money of course she disappeared like it actually plays into the internal logic of the movie and anyone who's listened to the halloween episode knows that i had a bit of a problem with some of the very illogical choices that some of the characters made but i feel like part of the reason psycho is so good and stands up so well is that like the characters because we have strong established motivations their choices make sense and then the internal logic of the movie makes sense like it's not the sheriff from halloween being like we found a dead dog those kids and their pranks it's like oh she stole money of course we can't find her so i guess getting into the private investigator piece we finally get to see that the sister has come for the boyfriend is like is she here where is my sister (laughs) Also played by the wonderful Vera Miles, who was Laurie in Searchers. We loved her. Yeah. Oh, yes. Also love her in this. She's so good. And cast really well. Like immediately when she came in to the the little, I guess, corner store shop thing, I was like, oh, I can see the family resemblance. So anyway, I think they did a really good job with that casting. Yeah. And I like that she is kind of suspicious of Sam at first. Well, and so She's is the private like, eye, I, yeah, which is like, the interesting they're part. They're like... Do you have anything to do with this? Do you know where she is? And they establish pretty quickly that he doesn't. But I like that they, like, question it. Because, again, like, that's the logical thing that, like, people would do in that circumstance. Mm-hmm. So it's clear that the PI wants that money, wants to get to where Marion is. And so we get this pretty enough, but kind of, well, I don't know, the montage of him going to all the motels and being told, no, she's not been here. I was kind of like, eh. I guess we needed this to get him to the Bates Motel, but that to me was a little bit throwaway. I don't know if you two disagree with me on that, though. Um, 
I mean, I do, but it's only like 15 seconds, so, yeah, so it's, I don't feel like it's okay. wasted celluloid. Like I said, I think, <laughs> yeah, it, it keeps in-world logic going. It shows the tenacity of Arbogast, kind of sets him up as a, a guy who gets the job done come hell or high water, which is going to play a lot into when he finally gets to meet Norman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess if they didn't show it, I would be like, well, why is that motel the first one he'd go to? Like, it's so isolated. Why would he think she stopped there? So I guess... Yeah, that's fair. I that's guess fair. that bit is for annoying people like me <laughs> <laughs> but the the next big scene that i loved and again we get the claustrophobic cinematography and the like focus on the dialogue between um arbogast the pi and norman in the office of the motel and so again similarly with how they shot norman in the study but not around his birds this time which i thought was an interesting I guess, change of scenery because it's a kind of a power shift from his perspective. So like he's no longer in his inner sanctum where he, he is in control. It's this outsider that is pressing him on these really difficult questions. And again, we have like the idea of the mother where the minute the mother's brought up, like Norman's not doing super well under the grilling, but it's like when the mother's brought up, like that's when he really feels cornered. And, and that's, I love every single scene Norman has where he's kind of being interrogated or interrogating another character. And this one is so much fun because Arbogast, Martin Balsam is so good in this role that I think he's on screen for probably 10 minutes. But the heat that he puts on Norman and how he can still manage to be kind of charming and welcoming and that when he's caught him lying, he's still just like, oh, I know you wouldn't lie. Here, just take another look at the picture. It's like you said, Ian, it's, it's this great way to kind of ease off the tension when there's this power shift because we know what Norman's capable of. I mean, we don't know at that point he's the killer, but we know he's capable of mopping things up. And so to to have his uh, cleanup job have holes poked into it by this really charming, tenacious guy is a supreme pleasure. Oh, yeah. And it's like, I thought Norman was going to be more calculated than he ultimately ended up being. So I think that was kind of refreshing to see the the cracks in his facade from time to time. I mean, it's part of what kind of makes him feel real and like even then a little sympathetic because at that point you're like, eh, well, Norman did have something to do with it. But you're like still probably thinking that the mom is the killer. So you still kind of feel sorry for him. So seeing him like caught in this position that he doesn't seem equipped to handle kind of keeps that sympathy going a little bit yeah i definitely agree with that so ultimately norman kind of nicely asks arborgast to leave which i don't know i was i was surprised that he actually came all the way to saying like no you need to get out of my hotel because i kind of expected it to just kind of peter out over time no but instead arborgast calls lila and he's like yeah, I just got like a weird feeling. He wouldn't let me talk to the mom. I'm going to go back and like, I'm going to try and talk to her. I'll be like an hour, which like good on him for phoning yeah. somebody and giving them a timeline. Like we just, our characters start making some really good decisions and it made me really happy. Yeah. That's Hitchcock's thing too. He loves showing people who are good at their job. He feels if you can see a competent, somebody who's competent in their work, it really endears you to them. It really does. Like it, it works so well. Like I'm like I like like I like Sam. I like Lila. I like Arbogast. Like I like that they won't give up and that like they're determined. So determined, also, in fact. I, I was gonna <laughs> oh. say too. I think. Sorry, this is a random thought. So Sam's character, his last name's Loomis. I bet the detective in Halloween 
or the doctor, Dr. Loomis in Halloween. That's got to be like an homage, it is. right? It is okay. a direct homage. Cool. And Billy Loomis in Scream is also, I, th- I think that that's based off Halloween, which is based off Psycho. So maybe Psycho's ripping it off from something else. I'm going to give it to Psycho. I'm comfortable with that. <laughs> Andrew is the Lee most Curtis is quoted. Janet Lee's daughter, so that's also a fun tie-in. Some good connective tissue going on here. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. We definitely did that on purpose. Not because I refused to watch American Psycho again. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Detective Arbor, well, not Detective, sorry, Private Investigator Arbergast is so good at his job, in fact, he decides to go into the Bates home, which, as we know or as I knew at this point, because I had not seen it before, I'm like, oh, the mother is in there. Maybe you shouldn't go in the house by yourself. So I was on, like, on pins and needles the entire time. And she's a sick old woman. Well, the way she she flew at (laughs) Marion in the shower, I'm like, hmm, she's a sick old woman, but she's got some banshee in her. (laughs) (laughs) And then you get the really great shots of, Loomis coming up the stairs and instead of it being the behind the back shot that you often get in horror movies it is the like straight on looking down shot which of course is done to hide the killer's actual face because when he reaches the top of the stairs I feel like this would normally be a jump scare but it's not really a jump scare because you're looking straight down and you like see the door to the side open and this like what looks like an old woman just walks straight at him and then like stab at him how low was the volume on your TV? Probably, probably kind of low. Too low. If I'm being honest. It's it's a pretty good jump scare because Bernard Herman comes blasting in there with his orchestra as soon as Mother bursts out of the door. It the first it time I watched me. this, I was kind of like zoning out, kind of snoozing on my couch. That moment was so loud, it woke me up, made me jump, and I fell off my couch. Oh wow! I'm gonna be <laughs> honest. When forced to watch scary movies, I do keep the volume low. It's a good policy. Yeah. I like to be able to hear if the monster is in my home, personally. Very good. Well, but why? they're not in your home. They're on your TV, unless we're watching The Ring. Exactly, Um, Ian. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So, again, we have another person down. Another. Now I think we're two for the body count. I was going to say, too, that marsh has got to be filling up, right? I was going to say. Like, you got to be running out of places. That's probably why he was freaked out about the car not sinking at first, because he's like, oh, I guess I reached the bottom. (laughs) But then he was like, nope, going to put another car in there. I was like, eventually, eventually, but I cannot continue to work. The end of that scene with his face in kind of shadow, but lit from the edges like that rivals the ending scene in my mind for like some of the creepiest face that he gives in that entire film. Well, there's also the, like, really creepy bit where he's, like, arguing with his mother, quote, mother, about, like, I need to take you to the basement to be safe. And then you see him, like, carrying a weirdly still body out of the room and down the steps. But But still, like, convincingly could be an alive person. I love the way that this went down in the film. Because you get uh, Marion's sister... And Lila. Sam, Lila, thank you. I'm sorry. I'm horrible it's with okay. names. Or Vera know. Miles. Um, Vera Miles her. and Mr. Loomis. They're, well, it's really Vera Miles' character who is like saying, okay, he said he'd be an hour. It's been three. We need to go investigate. So they. Well, first she's like, let's go talk to the police. And I was like, snaps for Vera Miles <laughs> for being like, let's go to the police on this one. 
because this is where you get the backstory. Yes, about how the mother was buried and he's distraught. They're like, well, he said he saw like a woman, right? I'm not getting this out of order. They go to the police first, right? And they don't go over there. Or does Sam go go over there to like check it out? Nope, they go to the cops first. Okay, good. I thought so. Because I was like, I wrote in my notes, good for them. So. Well, they they go there, but nobody is home. Mm-hmm. So then they go to the police. And that's, that's where we understand that Mrs. Bates is supposed to be dead. And so this is where I love how this is a bit of a red herring going on here. And it like starts to chip away at what you thought was real. Because you know you heard somebody. Mm-hmm. And you know you saw a shadow in the window. But for me, my immediate thought was, oh, God, who else did she kill and bury in her place? That was well, my first thought. Well, that's what they ask, because they're like, if she's there, then who's buried in that casket? And then the whole initial story they tell is that it was a murder-suicide and that the mom killed her boyfriend and then killed herself. So you're thinking, like, oh, maybe she didn't really die. Like, it's still very much like a possibility that that is the mom in the house. Well, and they reinforce the this, I guess, farce for lack of a better word with the mother that he uh norman carries down the stairs to hide because another person is going to come so i don't know i loved how they built that up and kind of at least me they had me bought into the idea that mrs bates was alive and well and murdering people i mean i think it's like one of those things where like you're you're kind of suspicious at this point but you still just don't know and that's kind of the worst part. Okay, that's so what Hitchcock does best, is that you just don't know. I, I'm going to read my note verbatim because it's kind of funny. Um, so I was like, her mother is dead. What? So who's killing Norman in drag? <laughs> 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 yes, Ian. Yes, yes. actually. So, <laughs> and no. Nailed it. Yeah. But really, it was his it depends mother. On, depends on who you talk to, because... I was going to say the psychologist is like, yeah, well, kind of and kind of not. <laughs> and before yes. we move on, I just want to call out how gorgeous that shot is of the, the argument about the fruit cellar, that it starts with Norman at the bottom of the stairs. And as the conversation's going, it's this crane shot that goes up the stairs. Like, there's not a cut in it. Like, that movement from the bottom of the stairs to that God's eye view looking down on him carrying her is all one smooth, slow mm-hmm. shot. Mm-hmm. I do love and the that. The camera work is like just so beautiful in this, and it's very like they know when to be still, and then they know when to like move too. Oh yeah, it's. I think that's a part of a huge part of the movie's scare factor. Is it's a very still movie. It has a lot of confidence and elegance. It's not really super frenetic outside of the shower sequence. I also loved how he walked up the stairs because I could not walk more creepily if I tried. <laughs> That was, I don't know, it was impressive. Even so, my uh, my mom was in town and watched it with me at the same time. And she even made a comment on him walking creepily up the stairs. And I'm like, yep, I agree. I agree. <laughs> You're like, see my previous note. But yeah, so then we get Sam and Lila being like, okay, we're going to go over there. And I like that they have a plan. They're like, we're going to check in pretend we're a married couple we'll just like get the information and then we're gonna search the room and we're gonna go try and talk to the mom because like surely she saw something and then they're talking about like surely he killed her for the money and i was like you guys it's so cute that you still think this is about the money it's dramatic irony maggie but like it makes sense like it's it It makes absolute sense but i just it's it's adorable that they still think it's that simple 
Well, and I also love that even with their plan, they're like, okay, let's go search the room. Mm-hmm. They know that Norman has left, but between the soundtrack and the way they're sneaking around, I'm sitting there like, oh my God, Norman is going to come back and find them. Like I flat out thought when they opened the door after they were done searching that Norman was just going to be standing there staring at them, which I guess almost was because he was right next door in the office and I presume was looking through the peephole. But that tension there was like crazy and built from nothing almost. I don't know. It's yeah. It was just so, it just kind of like hit me all at once without me noticing any sort of change in the film per se. Well, and then I, I love this next sequence because to me, it's like a prelude to what Hitchcock does in Rear Window, which is like my favorite Hitchcock film, where you have Sam distracting Norman, which Sam starts off doing a really good job. And then he starts getting like really pushy. And I was like, Sam, chill. Let's be like a little bit more subtle. But then you have it cut between his conversation with Norman getting like a little bit more and more heated and then Vera Miles going through that old creepy house. And it just reminds me of in Rear Window where you have Jimmy Stewart watching Grace Kelly like going through mm-hmm. the murderer's apartment. Yeah, he he knows how to mind the tension. I have to get movie nerd and push my glasses up and say actually Rear Window <laughs> is is a prelude to Psycho. Oh, is it earlier? I thought it was later. Yeah, I think Rear Window is 54 and this is 60, but they're, they're varied enough that it doesn't feel like he's ripping himself off, right? Because it's a, no. a very different technique. You know, with Rear Window, you kind of have that fixed viewpoint from outside the window. But here, you know, he, he really uses a lot of almost tropes of gothic horror movies. Like, that, that, that house really does feel like a haunted mansion of sorts. So, you know, yes. the cross-cutting between the conversations between Sam and Norman and um, Lila sneaking around the house, I, I think, is really good. And I think it's also a great visual storytelling moment of telling basically the entire story of Norman's childhood through a couple of inanimate objects. Oh, yeah. Like, it's basically we have the little bit of backstory that we got from, like, the sheriff and his wife. And then we have Lila walking through, like, the mother's room and then walking through Norman's room where it still has, like, all of the childhood toys Mm -hmm. and stuff. And you're like, I immediately 100% understand this character and I do not like what I see. Oh, yeah. That was that room was one of the creepiest in that entire house like maybe even the root cellar was not as creepy at least in my mind because you have like the childhood dolls plus his taxidermy birds and this disheveled kind of sad looking bed like the way that that all added together to a lonely and crazy person was chilling and I really want to know what was in that book that she found but that's like kind of the brilliance of it, right? Is that like you don't know exactly what she saw, but like you know it was bad because of the way she reacts to it. And then it's like almost worse because you're just left to imagine what it was. Yes. Well, and you know that she found something. And at about that time is when Norman beats up Sam with that like jar of something or other to escape and go back up to the house. I know. And then you get the beautiful shot of her running towards the front door, seeing he's coming back, and then she goes and kind of hides behind the railing going down to the basement. And so you have the shot of her, like, pressed up against the railing, and we're, like, kind of level with the floor a little bit, and you see Norman come through the door and then pause and then go upstairs. And that's when I said, good God, girl, get out. I but know, she that didn't. may be the most <laughs> tense moment in the movie, I think. <laughs> Instead, no, she's Lila. She's she's our, I don't know, like early final girl. 
she's curious, so she sees something in the root cellar that like catches her eye, and she's got to go in. This reveal, I thought was spectacular and it made me jump. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It did. It did. So she walks down to the lower part of the cellar where you get the light bulb kind of obscuring part of the frame, and you just see this figure in a chair with a bun of graying hair. And you're like, oh my gosh, it's Mrs. Bates. And it is Mrs. Bates. But she's been mummified. <laughs> so you get the hurt, like Lila tapping on the chair, the mummified Mrs. Bates spinning around. And the part that is like even so creepy about it is that she's like clearly wearing, like the mummified Mrs. Bates is clearly wearing a wig, which I just found so unsettling. And then Lila like hits the light bulb. So you've got all this like bouncing light and these like lens flares. And then she screams, which of course means that Norman now knows she's in the house. Uh, And you get the typical theme with the screeching strings and the reveal of Norman in drag. Which is maybe the most terrifying shot in the movie is like, because he's got that like manic grin on his face and his eyes are so wide and he's just like standing there holding a knife. Oh my God, that was... I wish I'd covered my eyes for that. I didn't need to see it. Oh, I loved it. It was so good. <laughs> and the way and the way the bouncing light kind of makes it look like she still has eyes in her skull, that she's still mm-hmm. a presence. It's so creepy. And then of course Sam comes in and kinda like saves the day, but there there is like a moment there where you're like, Well, this is it for Lila, because everybody else who I thought was gonna like make it through this movie hasn't. So nice knowing you. I was okay with him coming in and saving the day, though. I'm, I'm, okay I'm glad that she survived. Well, yeah. More. So, well, yeah. Anyway, sorry. That was. You're a good person. <laughs> <laughs> you want but to like, that's... figure out what happened to your poor sister. I mean, that's kind of too like where you see kind of the precursor to the final girl because like Lila really does drive that entire investigation and like she's scrappy and she like isn't afraid. She's curious, but like at the end of the day, like. There is somebody who survives with her and, like, who saves her. So she doesn't, like, 100% beat the monster herself. But you kind of, like, see the start of that trope. Love it. I'd never, I'd never thought of that before, but that's, you're right. That's so cool. Yeah, there's that one. And then there was, like, there's, like, the minor things. And then the, I think the idea maybe of, like, the character, like, the very, like, sexual character being killed off early, mm-hmm. I think a little bit you get with Marion. But, like, it's more complicated than that with Marion, right. but I think that's something that is obviously very present in like, like we talked about a lot in Halloween and like the other mm-hmm. slasher films of like the seventies and eighties. I did appreciate that it wasn't like the whole opening scene. It was very clear. It's like, Oh, it's the six, well, six, 1960. So you're having a relationship out of wedlock and it's being shown on uh screen. Oh my God, it's scandalous. But I'm really glad that she wasn't cast as this morally bankrupt person in the end. Oh no. So like, I thought again, that was pretty progressive. Marion's no. just like a fully formed character. So like you feel her loss when she does die and you're like really rooting on Lila and Sam to like find out what happened. Yeah. And I think if I could say that there's one thing about the movie I also think is maybe a weakness is I know there was a scene shot where it was before Sam and Lila went to the Bates Motel to do their sting operation and they had a discussion about that they probably were going to have to come to terms with the fact that Marion had been murdered. And I wish that was still 
in the movie. I, I think there's suggestions of it, but I, I think that that sense of loss could be a little strongly, more strongly felt between the two. But I do appreciate that the movie does not end with them in each other's arms. Yeah, I think there's a sequel that was done like mm-hmm. many After years Hitchcock later. Died. Where I think I think those two characters are married, but I appreciate that it doesn't happen in the film. Like they're just like we don't need we don't need to have like the two surviving characters end up together at the end. Like we can just have like their entire relationship be like, hey, we both cared about this other person, and we're gonna find out what happened. And I think that would be nice if there was the scene where like they're going into that investigation knowing full well that like she's probably been murdered she might have been murdered but like we're still gonna find this out because it's important Mm -hmm. to know Mm -hmm. so the final like set of scenes is both my least and most favorite in the entire movie so i really hated the psychiatrist's monologue i get why they needed it because it set up the ending scene beautifully (laughs) also this is 1960 so like and obviously like there's terminology that the psychiatrist used that would have been acceptable like medical terminology at the time that is not acceptable now well but but it was also fairly progressive in its treatment of well they use the word transvestite um in the film but the psychiatrist is like yes but no really he is his mother in this so it's really just him being his mother not being deviant so he um or as he he brought in the like sexual component of it and he was like, no, it's really not that. It's something totally different. So I did appreciate at least that little bit of progressivism. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like very accurate to what would have been actual medical practice at the time. You know, like they're they're describing things in with terminology that we would think is antiquated, but like the idea of like this person having developed this like other identity through trauma that is now like taking over, I guess like the original identity, like that feels very like modern and like accurate even if the term like the exact Mm -hmm. terminology isn't i just wish there was a more graceful way to transition into the voiceover scene at the end (laughs) yeah i mean they had to explain it though too because i mean it's the 1960s how like open are most people about like mental illness how much does like the general population know about something like a psychotic break so i feel like you know they kind of have to have it because they have to be able to like explain it to the audience mm-hmm. there was no criminal minds back then <laughs> and and he he's grown on me i i know what you're saying ian like his his delivery of those lines sometimes seems a little too soapboxy but i think the, the more i see the movie the more i look forward to it just because like it wouldn't be psycho without the overzealous psychiatrist but there's you know we've also <laughs> been through some really heavy tense stuff so i think that lending a moment of levity before we had like the final really depressing blow that there is no Norman anymore, that he's been completely consumed by his trauma and his mother. Um, So there's a part of me that thinks like the way this guy delivers the lines is actually a a really smart move to kind of bounce us through some exposition, get us through some techno babble before we get like right down to what is really a very chilling and very depressing ending. Oh my God, this ending just... Norman, wrapped in a blanket against this blank white wall, which again, it starts off center and then zooms so that it's an extreme close-up of him at center and just the voiceover being the mom's voice 
oh my god and she's basically like oh norman's gonna blame it on me so i'm just gonna sit here and i'm not gonna say anything and i would never do this like oh not even gonna fly (laughs) yeah they'll say why she wouldn't even harm a fly and then the sick smile that just comes over anthony perkins's face as he's like kind of like his head is angled down so he's looking like straight at camera kind of up through his eyelashes it is so chilling that's that scene's the one that haunts you double exposure with what i presume was the face of his mother's Mm -hmm. corpse right before they get you on the uh on marion's car at the very end being pulled out of the swamp i kind of wish they hadn't had the shot of the car i actually forgot that the shot of the car was the last shot of the movie because literally all i remember in the sticks in my brain is that i would never hurt a fly Right. Well, I, I like the, the shot of the car because it does give a moment for that line to land and it gives Bernard Herrmann's score kind of one last hurrah. But also there's there's a lot going on with this movie in terms of surfaces and depths and you know, hiding the car is burying these these murders that Norman's committed, these sins of the past. And a lot of the movie is about drudging up the past. So I think that pulling the car out back into the light of day is actually a pretty good shot for the movie to end on. I guess it's also a way to, like, remind us of Marion, too, because, like, I mean, she's, like, the reason that everyone's investigating, but she does kind of fall mm. to the wayside a little bit. So it's nice to, like, remember her, too, because she is such a good character. And they get the money mm-hmm. back. I mean, what's, what's left of it? <laughs> Probably very water damage. Well, it's still worth 40, well, is it? $39,300. I've forgotten how <laughs> cash works. Oh, what a day and age we live in. I do want to call out really quick. Virginia Gregg did that voiceover at the end. I think they, she was uncredited, um, but there were actually three folks, Virginia Gregg, Paul Jasmine, and Jeanette Nolan, who all three provided voices at one point or another for uh, the character of Mrs. Bates. But Virginia Gregg did a really great job at the end there. So just wanted to point that out. That is, I did not realize that that was three different people because it sounds I noticed some variation though. to it. But like you could kind of put that down because there are some times where it's like the mom screaming and then there are other times where she's just like plainly talking so i could have i would have written that off as like just variation based on like what the scene's doing yeah yeah i could see that but yeah three people (laughs) it's crazy they all did excellent work yes very true everybody on this film did excellent work so yeah, I'm a big fan, I've decided, and might actually go and rewatch the shower scene like right now. <laughs> <laughs> so you can well, realize no, all the stuff the that you missed. I, I um I love that I was hiding behind how many a times pillow have you seen for it? part of that and I still <laughs> Okay, well there you go. Twice. And one of the once was years ago, and I guarantee you I was hiding behind <laughs> okay, the pillow fair. then too. Fair. But no, I, I do notice a lot more the second time I watch, second and third times I will watch through movies. And so I'm like, I want to see all of the things that I missed mm-hmm. the first time because I'm sure there's plenty, especially with all of the like bird motifs that we see throughout. And Psycho's a movie that just keeps giving. It, I sincerely think it's like one of the best movies ever made. And it's kind of because I can point out like individual scenes and moments that are so great and and things that you can read into symbolism but there is like a connective tissue that's almost ethereal that like defies my ability to like talk about it or even identify what it is and so like the movie's made super cheap it's made with a television crew for low budget so Hitchcock can prove he can make a low budget movie that's on an A scale and he made like one of the most 
re- rewardingly rewatchable movies ever because after you know the first time it's just a really compelling mystery like what's going on with Norman and his mom and then the second time you watch it Ian it's just going to open up like all the things he does with his camera the way that he places props in the set the things that Anthony Perkins is doing with his performance or really all the performers like it's such a perfect movie there like nobody misses a beat like everybody was just on their a game during this entire movie and it's such a treat to watch when you're not hiding but there's not that many times you have to hide in this one so was it all you other scared was it just the two times yeah i just i didn't watch all of the shower scene like there were just moments of the shower scene and then i think that was mostly it i knew when um arbogast got killed i just had the volume really low but i watched all of that it's good kill yeah, I knew that one was coming, too. I remembered that one very distinctly. And I remembered the shower scene was coming, too. But that one's creepy. Understandably. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, well, yeah, definitely recommend everybody watch it. Yeah, I doubly will because, uh, like you guys said, we covered it in the very early days of cinema. So I think it was like our fifth episode and really handily was voted by listeners as a movie that absolutely everybody should see. So... I don't know if anybody made it an hour into a spoiler discussion without having seen it, but in case that hasn't swayed them to go watch it, I'm, th- I'm doubling down. Everybody's got to see this movie. Yeah, and now that you know what happens, too, you don't have to be that scared. Like, there you go. And you know where to you know avoid. What it's for. Just baths, not showers for a couple <laughs> days after watching it. Or just shower with the shower curtain like, open. That's true. They can't sneak up on you. I... <laughs> I don't know if that helps that much, honestly. Just shower with a knife. Oh, just work from home for a couple days. Just don't shower. It'll be fine. Um, anyway, I think we're good. Mike, do you want to remind them where they can find yeah, Cinemusts? Um, anywhere you look, just search Cinemusts. It's C-I-N-E-M-U-S-T-S. So we're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. That's where we run those polls for listeners to decide which movies we discuss. We'll make that list of must-see movies. So, yeah, everybody check it out. Um, At the time this episode drops, we'll have a poll out for Roger Corman's The Mask of the Red Death. And on Tuesday, we will be covering An American Werewolf in London. So we are ending October with some spooky movies ourselves. So yeah, anybody who's listening, we'd appreciate your opinions on those movies and your votes for if they're going to make that list of essential cinema. Yeah, definitely go listen. Go vote. Ian, why don't you tell our social handles and email because I keep messing up. Well, yeah, so we are not on Facebook sadly but we are on twitter and hey, instagram if you want to manage the page you go for it as a as someone who does not have a facebook i feel like that's a poor choice <laughs> i thought so continue uh we're at best pictures pod and at best pictures podcast at gmail.com if you have anything more long form so please reach out let us know what you liked what you didn't like where we were wrong hopefully more so where we were right Yes, Maybe. we would love to hear your thoughts on this. Um, especially if you also aren't a scary movie fan. I want to see how popular this is with other people who don't like scary movies. That would be interesting. Definitely agree. And thanks oh, again. Just, that would be really interesting. Yeah, totally agree. And thanks again, Mike, for coming on and talking Psycho oh, with us. Really guys. enjoyed it. Yeah. Okay. And I think next time we're back with The Apartment. So we're back to canon episodes. All right. Alrighty. Catch you all next time. Oh, we're talking over you now. Okay. Do you want to say you that again? No, you no, say it again. You got it. No, you say it. Okay. Catch y'all next time. Nice. (laughs) Oh, my goodness.